You are listening to Shaping a Better Maritime World podcast by Bureau Veritas. Each month, we discuss marine and offshore market trends with key stakeholders to help you navigate the energy transition and shape a better maritime world for the future generation. Welcome to the latest episode of Shaping a Better Maritime World, a podcast where we explore the fascinating developments in the marine and offshore industry and its course to a more sustainable future. We'll also explore the cutting-edge solutions that are revolutionising the way cruise ships are operated. So joining me today are Bud Dar, Executive Vice President of Maritime Policy and Government Affairs at MSC Group, and my colleague Andreas Ulrich, Bureau Veritas Global Market Leader for Passenger Ships and Ferries. Well, to get us started, my first question is a general one about sustainability. Just how important is sustainability for the cruise industry, and especially for MSC, and how you see the current impact of the cruise industry uh, to your operating environment? Well, Nick, sustainability is is really a cornerstone of uh, how we operate today and how we see ourselves operating for the future. It's important to keep in perspective that unlike cargo shipping, which is really a, a fundamental a lifeline for the world's economies and in some cases uh, connecting, um, say, for example, island uh, communities with mainlands. Uh, when it comes to what we offer in the way of cruise, it's purely discretionary. So it's very important that we not only uh, compete well with land-based alternatives for holidays and what we're offering is those discretionary experiences, um, but we also, I, I think, need to exceed that performance and challenge us all the time. If if we can't do that, I think we're going to find ourselves under um, greatly increasing pressure as to whether or not we can even operate in certain locations. So it's very important from an ethical perspective, from a corporate social responsibility perspective, um, but also from a business perspective. And one of the most important things, but it's also very challenging, is to take sustainability as a concept and actually make that become a daily part of the business model and a part of the corporate DNA. Thanks for that, Bud. And in terms of outlining the key challenges you face, is there a a strong element of prioritization as well? You know, what you're going to do now and and what you can only get to later when you look at the challenges you're facing? Yes, that that is the case, uh, Nick. And and partially that's driven by what are the available available options uh, to meet those particular challenges. And it's not one size fits all. Uh, When it comes to decarbonization, for example, there are some things we can do today with regard to energy efficiency and uh, we're Doing some um, some trial work with uh, with biofuels that I think will will probably expand over time uh, based on the experience we have in the cargo side of our business and the deployment of fossil based LNG, but those all have significant limitations to them. But as we move forward into the future, and as we saw with MSC Arabia, um, there is a future with biogas, and uh, I think with uh, e forms of LNG as well for the future for those same ships. Uh, On MSC World Europa, we've got an experimental SOFC fuel cell 
a deployment that we're using that we intend to, to scale up over time. And we're trying various other technologies to get there. With other forms of sustainability, there are things that are not so technology-related, but yet uh, require us to, to think through the way we operate and uh, the way we source uh, particular uh, materials and, and products that go on the ships. For example, uh, we've done a really great job of eliminating most single-use plastics on board the ships and uh, in our cruise fleet, and we're working very hard to see what we can do to go farther than the single-use plastics and we're making a lot of progress there. And the interesting thing with that is as we've put in the hard work to do that with regard to our supply chains, we found that some of those solutions are not only uh, cost-neutral, but in some cases even cost-positive. Uh, so uh, just good business practices as well as sustainability practices. And one area, other area I would point to that's more operationally focused, but it also has a technology element to it, is what footprint are we leaving overall in the communities that that we serve as, as cruise lines bringing our guests there? And so, for example, can we stagger calls so that the, um, so that the, the number of guests that go ashore at any one time are, uh, are, are managed more properly together uh, with the shoreside authorities as well that have a shared responsibility there? Or can we get shore power to move beyond being mostly a theoretical conversation to a more practical solution to eliminate virtually all emissions from the stack of the ship? Not completely, you can't quite get there, but very, very close to that in, in certain cases. And I, I think shore power is one example where technology can help us reduce our, our footprint uh, as, as that becomes more available. And we're doing our part for the shipboard side of that, but it's really the shore side part that is by far the weak link right now. Yes, that's really interesting, isn't it? And, and it's a common theme that you can control the shipboard operating environment. We really need those ashore to help support us and, and change the system uh, to a great extent. Talking of which, regulations at both global and regional level obviously play an important role. How do you see the regulatory landscape helping you or hindering you at the moment and, and the implications for, for the decisions you'll be making in, in the months and years ahead? Well, it depends on the subject area we're talking about with sustainability, and I'll give you a couple of examples. I think when it comes to solid waste management, and that's principally governed by Marple Annex 5, uh, we are far and away well beyond uh, what the regulatory requirements uh, you know, would would make us do, uh, and just as business practices, particularly if you look at the great extent we um, put a huge amount of effort and resources into recycling, um, the the regulations are are way way behind what we're already doing in in the cruise sector, and uh, I think the rest of the industry has has some things to learn from that. Um, when it comes to wastewater management, uh, I think that. What's important there is to make sure that any developments actually are realistic with regard to what is achievable through technology. But again, the cruise industry has historically been real leaders in that. And we have, for example, solutions available to treat gray water uh, today should they you know, be more fully deployed, but they are largely deployed anyway uh, in the cruise sector that could apply to the rest of the shipping community if the regulators decide 
um, to actually put mandatory requirements on in that space, which I think inevitably will happen sometime in the not-too-distant future, and the cruise industry had a huge role to play in the technology readiness level for that. When it comes to decarbonization, which is really the existential threat that not only the cruise industry, but all of shipping is is facing. I mean, it's an enormous policy and regulatory uh, challenge that we have to overcome, and we will overcome. The regulatory landscape matters a great deal. I believe that there are enough other influences on shipping and on cruise shipping in particular to where we will decarbonize and we have to decarbonize. And I think you know we would do so on our own timelines and do so successfully. However, the pace at which that progress is made and the range of options that are available to the industry to do that and a corollary to that is whether or not you have a level playing field in doing so will largely turn upon whether or not we have a fit-for-purpose set of regulatory regimes. I wish it could just be one regime and it were global in application, but I don't know that that's a realistic expectation when you look at how far, for example, the EU has already gone. I think the best we can hope for is that they're compatible and they fit together and that hopefully those that become outdated by progress that's made at the international level, maybe retired at the regional level so that we have more continuity overall. But in my opinion, when it comes to decarbonization, where global regulation could help the most right now is a combination of an economic measure and a global fuel standard. And those would not be identical to, but they would be analogous to the market-based measure through the ETS that's in the EU. I think it's more likely at the international level it will look more like a levy uh, on fuel or on carbon. And similar to what has been done through the fuel EU maritime uh, regulation, a fuel standard that tracks kind of like that. And those two elements together, I think, have great potential to accelerate the trajectory towards decarbonization overall, to level the playing field, and to keep a range of options open, which is what we will really need. And if we continue to see poorly thought through Uh, regulatory initiatives, um, it runs the risk of actually having the opposite of the intended effect. And what I mean by that is it may delay genuine large steps in progress that we need, and in some cases can actually impede progress that would have been made otherwise. And I think we need to be very cautious that um, regulations are thought through with the proper amount of consideration of the impacts and the variables that go with them um, before they're put into place, and maybe we regret that later on. But there's an important role to play, and the industry actually welcomes that additional regulatory framework to help us get where we need to get to. Yeah, that's really interesting, Bud. And if I understand you correctly, therefore, if we can't stop or don't want to stop individual regions' ambition to reduce emissions and put in place their own regulation, the IMO certainly has an opportunity to catch up eventually and put in place a global regime. Yeah, Nick, I I would say that's right. There is that opportunity. Uh, I would hope that would turn into a seized opportunity to actually lead at the global level rather than to follow. But I think that the best way to avoid a balkanized worldwide system of patchwork quilt sort of regulatory regimes on decarbonization is to have an effective and robust and 
truly supported global set of regulations that really will help us get there. And if you think about it, unlike other emissions that we're constantly working to try and reduce, like NOx and SOx and uh, PM 2.5 and PM 10, which are really localized in the effect of where they are emitted from, With regard to greenhouse gases, it doesn't matter where the gram of greenhouse gas is emitted. It could be where I'm sitting today in Hamburg, or it could be uh, in Durban, South Africa, and it has exactly the same impact on the environment overall. So it provides not only a unique opportunity to maybe be creative in the way that we regulate, but it also... um, really lends itself towards a need for a global approach when you think about the agnostic nature of the impact of those emissions, because it just doesn't matter where it is emitted, it still has the impact on the environment that's the same. And the same is true, obviously, for every bit of emissions that is avoided. How much do you think your passengers are brought into the need to address sustainability issues? You know, you've talked about um, how you've changed your operating systems and and I've been in the garbage management room on one of your big ships and it's pretty impressive what you're doing there and and uh, it left a big impression on me but do you think cruise passengers are are really aware of that behind the scenes effort you're putting in and, and how much you're thinking about the future and do you see them willing perhaps to pay more or or have a a different cruise experience to try and find a more sustainable pathway to the future of cruise shipping Well, the short answer to your question on awareness is, unfortunately, I'd say today, no. Um, If you ask our passengers, you know, at a high level, do you think sustainability is important? They, of course, say yes. Um, Do they want their cruise line or the cruise they take um, to be environmentally protective and leave as small of a footprint as possible? Absolutely, they'll say that. But do we really see any differentiation in the appetite to pay a premium for those things that have a cost to us as operators? The answer is, unfortunately, today, pretty much no. So the investments we're making today beyond what the regulations require are really investments for meeting our own standards and also for investing in the future. Because I'm constantly reminding people that get a little frustrated by the costs, the monetary costs that are involved in this with little reflection in the marketplace to this point from the passenger base to pay more for that, is that don't think about today. Think about the lifespan of this ship. And, you know, we don't know how long a modern cruise ship lasts, but uh, we do know before the pandemic it was about over 43 years or so, uh, the average age of a ship that went to recycling just before the pandemic. So a ship that we amortize over 30 years today may very well be in service in some capacity for 40 years. And if you think about what the demographics and just the uh, you know psychographics also of your passenger base looks like over time, our passengers later on in the life cycle of that ship are not going to be the same passengers that we have today. And our passengers of the future, unlike people of my generation, really grew up with this from a young age as being really, really important to them. So I believe it will ultimately be reflected in the pricing structure in the market. Uh, it kind of has to be one way or the other eventually. But even if it didn't, it may 
ultimately just be a price for admission to be in the field. I mean, we don't get a premium because we operate a ship at a higher safety level, but it's absolutely expected by you know not only ourselves, but many other stakeholders, including our passengers, that we will operate a safe cruise. You don't get extra points for it. You don't get extra money for it, but it's expected. And I think that's where we will be on the most important of the sustainability issues over time as well, that maybe you don't expect to get a premium, but if you're in the marketplace at all, it is an expectation as a minimum set of requirements. Thank you, Bud. And and talking of longevity, and safety. I'll, I'll bring in Andreas here. Andreas has long been a, a classification uh, cruise ship focused expert. Andreas, you know, when you listen to Bud and, and obviously, you know, uh, you've talked to Bud offline a lot and, and lots of other of our cruise ship uh, stakeholders, how do you see the, the challenges at the moment? I mean, perhaps starting with safety, you know, how do we ensure that not only are cruise ships sustainable going to the future, but that we don't lose sight of those safety requirements that Bud has referenced. On the sustainability side, I think Bud covered everything what I also would like to say. On the safety side, for me, safety is paramount and it's never been seen differently in the cruise industry because safety is top priority and it will never change. And I think the industry has shown that safety is important for them. And when you see the accident records in the cruise industry, they are close to zero. So this tells a lot. Yeah, thanks for that, Andres. Let's talk about fuels and, and technology, You know, two of everybody's uh, favorite subjects often in, in these conversations. When you look at the, the future, Bud and, and Andreas, Bud, I, I, I know I've heard you recently talk about the technology being relatively mature and, and to some extent we've got to wait for the fuels, and, and we've mentioned a little bit. Do you, do you want to comment any further on, on what's most promising now in terms of the opportunities available? And do we need to be ready for surprises at some point in the future? Yes and yes. To talk about uh, the fuels, I think it's, first of all, important that we think of it in terms of plural fuels. I don't think there's going to be any one solution in the short to midterm here. Maybe in the long term, something emerges as a more obvious answer. But there's so many variables in that, including compatibility with the ship design and the ship's operating profile and the ship's type. And more importantly, the availability at scale worldwide where ships operate, that no one single molecule or one no one single source of those molecules is going to be an obvious leader for quite some time. And I don't think we'll have the volume that we need unless we have multiple fuel choices available. And so you are correct, Nick. I I have said publicly, I said it again this morning in a speech I gave, that technology right now is is winning the two-pronged race by far, in my opinion, that we'll be fully capable, I think, of using the alternative fuels far before they are really widely available in the marketplace at the kind of scale that we need. And there will be surprises. And I think that we need to remain flexible and think about that in the investments that we're making even today, because it could very well be that what is pretty clearly the best fuel choice for any particular ship or class of ships in 
2025 or 2030 may be different than the analysis you conduct in 2037 or 2040. And if you look at the you know, long-range nature of the operation of, of these ships, but even cargo ships where you, know, you might have a more normal 20 to 25-year lifespan, the answer that is the best answer could evolve over time. And so the more that you can build in in the way of flexibility today will I think position you better to be able to adapt to a changing marketplace with the fuels. Because in, at the end of the day, um, you know, this isn't about talk. It's not about statements and aspirations. It's about did we decarbonize? And we won't do that without the fuels. And the ship owners have a limited ability to control the actual development and delivery of those fuels. Because if you look at the shipping industry overall, it accounts for about 4% of the fuel usage worldwide. Well, that other 96% is going to have an awful lot to say about where the capital investment and the resources go in to developing the fuels in production and also building midstreams to deliver them for the future. And then one last point that I'll make on that is I think in way of preparedness, we absolutely have to keep in mind the role of seafarers and the need to enhance the levels of, of training and ongoing uh, training uh, throughout the, the lifespan of our seafarers on board and the life cycle of the ships, um, because some of these new fuels are going to have very different handling characteristics and the consequences, say, for example, of an ammonia fuel or a hydrogen fuel and a problem with that, uh, it could be very severe with regard to human health and, and welfare, um, but also could you know, have a great impact on the viability of that potential fuel track for solving this difficult problem. We need to keep all that in mind and make sure we don't forget the human factor and that we invest very heavily in that today. No, thank you very much, Bud, for bringing people in. That That's so important, isn't it? And, and the role of the seafarer, I think, is perhaps not thought of often enough when you hear policymakers talking about what they see as the official future of, of fuels. Um, and that point about training, I, I know it's one we've been discussing recently. Andreas, do you want to come in here at that point and maybe talk about safety of, of the fuels and technologies we're seeing at the moment? I think that the fuel topic was covered by, by but extensively already so but for me fuel is not the only option i think the best way is to reduce energy consumption on board this is what the industry is doing for decades already but of course there's still room to improve and as bud said when we see all the new technology bringing on the ship including fuels it requires also different safety consideration and as bud said also training of crew because this is evident today that these people are not available in large scale what i see and uh, fuel types depends on the qualification of the crew whether you use methanol whether you use hydrogen whether you have a fuel cell on board batteries endless discussion about this and uh, for me the final decision the way to go is what energy is needed for the ship in question what does it mean for fuel prices it has relation to capex and opex and then how what is the operational profile of a ship this defines a lot what type of fuel is used and where it's available. And then, of course, is the technology really mature today? I don't think so. A lot of them is in the testing phase, and we on BV, we support this test together with MSC, of course, and this was but said earlier, is demonstrated by having a fuel cell on MSC World Europa, which is really a test installation to, to check the technology that it functions in the shipping environment. Thank you, Andreas. And just finally, almost, let's talk about collaboration. 
We hear a lot about collaboration. Obviously, the role of class societies and flag state is important. Are there other stakeholders who really need to be involved in that collaboration? We've talked about ports. How do we effectively collaborate to promote sustainability in the industry, Bud? Well, I think there's a, a range of ways that, that we do that, and uh, they're all important. I mean, you mentioned class. Andreas and I were speaking a little earlier and realized you know, we've, we've known each other and worked together in various capacities for 30 years now, um, originally starting in, in safety and now safety and sustainability. Uh, so I think the role of class is extremely important because you know, class needs to be a partner with us as we evolve our thinking on ship design together with the, the ship builders and make sure that what we're doing is not only compatible with the regulations, but also fit for purpose for what we really intended. And I'll give you an example on that when it comes to you know, the damage stability regulations at IMO, which are now probabilistic in nature, which is probably a better formula. It still is a formula that has so many assumptions in it that uh, we really don't come to the best answer for survivability of the ship until you do analysis that goes above and beyond that. And so I think when you're talking about doing things that go above and beyond the regulations, the role of class and the resources that come into the creative application of that are extremely important. It's great to work with professionals like like Andreas that, that are like-minded in helping us get where we need to get to. But other collaborative mechanisms we have are, are also extremely important in the sustainability space. So For example, uh, what used to be called the Cruise Ship Safety Forum and is now the Cruise Safety and Sustainability Forum uh, has done some excellent work in this space and BV has has had a leadership role in that work. Uh, But uh, also, we should remember way back to 10 years ago or more when we were developing the Energy Efficiency Design Index application for uh, cruise ships, which IMO was really struggling with. That work was done by that same group already, so it's not that new for us. But the sustainability elements of that group have now become extremely important, and that's one collaborative process where we have the shipbuilders, the class societies, and the operators all together. I think that's very helpful. And then you have specialized centers that we take part in, such as the Global Center for Maritime Decarbonization based in Singapore, uh, the Maris McKinney Moeller Center for Zero Emission Shipping uh, based in Copenhagen, which we also uh, participate with. And then I think it's really important that you have the energy providers at the table here because it is so important to our success that we actually get the fuels in the end that you can't realistically think you're going to get the end result you need here unless you have the energy providers being partners. So we work with them through some associations such as CLNG or Methanol Institute or the uh, Society for Gases Marine Fuel, where I chair the Environment Committee, but also we have some more individualized partnerships. So we have a strategic partnership with Shell, where um, they're a major supplier of ours and we're a major customer of theirs. So it makes sense not just to work together commercially, but to separately work together on decarbonization solutions because we're very like-minded in the direction of travel for both of us, and we found that to be very helpful. All of those things are extremely important, and I would say probably more important than the work that we do in the regulatory space. Fantastic. Well, we are getting to the end of our short podcast. Just one last question, Bud and Andreas. Uh, Would you be willing to try and describe what 
the cruise industry is going to look like in 2043, in 20 years' time. But first. <laughs> well, it's always risky business to predict the future. Always. Um, but <laughs> if, you, if you listen to uh, my earlier comments about the longevity of cruise ships, a lot of the cruise industry going to have a look to it very much like the ships we're seeing delivered today, which I'm very proud of. I mean, I think MSC World Europa and MSC Arabia are, are, are masterpieces of ship design and construction and, and evolution and of, of work in that space. And we're very happy to have done that in collaboration with not only our shipbuilder, Chantier de l'Atlantique, but also Bureau Veritas. Uh, some of that will still be prominent. And I think we may be very proud of those ships as we look at 2043. But what I think you will see is a profound evolution in the usage of the fuels. I think you will see a dramatic decrease in many different aspects in the sustainability footprint of those, even those same ships, much less the new ones. And I think the new ships that we see at that time will um, really have no consideration in 2043 of running on fossil fuels. I don't think they'll have to. I think there will be enough other alternatives available that um, if you build a dual fuel ship, the you know default or backup fuel doesn't have to be oil-based. It could be uh, one of the other of the alternative fuels which should be in the marketplace by then, whether that's uh, some form of, of LNG that you know, probably not fossil LNG, but bio or synthetic, or whether it's uh, a green form of methanol. Uh, I think that we'll have lots of other options out there beyond just fossil-based fuels. And so I think you'll see that. And I also think you'll see uh, waste management that's just impeccable from both a solid waste and liquid waste standpoint. It's, it's industry leading right now in the cruise sector, but I think that will only improve over time. And then lastly, I think that tourism management shoreside will improve substantially in those areas that are very popular because those areas that are very popular are under pressure from their own citizens to make sure that they do their part to manage this correctly. And we'll be partners in that as the cruise sector for sure. Uh, we're taking great efforts to do that now. And part of that will be, I think we will see very widespread deployment of shore power compared to what we have today. But that requires a lot of capital investment on their part. But I think the regulatory regime will have something to say about that. And I, I think that will help expedite that. And that will be good for all of us too. Well, that's an inspiring and pragmatic outlook, I think, on the, f the future for cruise shipping. Thank you, Bud. And Andreas, any final thoughts before we close? There's not much to add what Bud said, so I think the, the future is great for the cruise industry, and the cruise industry is demonstrating already that they are leading the way on sustainability and, and safety at all. And as we talked before, collaboration is key, because no one alone can meet all the challenges we are faced today. We have to exchange, we have to support, and we have to share. Well, thank you very much, uh, Bud, for, for joining us today. Thank you, Andreas, for bringing Bud along. That's been a really informative and useful conversation. I hope our listeners will find. Thank you, Nick. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Nick, and especially thanks to Pat for joining us on this very nice conversation. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Shaping a Better Maritime World. We hope you found the conversation as informative and thought-provoking as as I did. Make sure to have a look at our website, Bureau Veritas Marine and Offshore, where you can find additional resources and information about cruise ships. So thank you very much. Whether we're meeting the challenges of decommissioning offshore oil and gas assets in a safe and sustainable manner, 
helping ship owners embrace decarbonisation and digitalisation to transport goods safely and sustainably, or supporting marine renewable energy technologies. Bureau Veritas Marine and Offshore is shaping a better maritime world. Thank you for listening to the Shaping a Better Maritime World podcast by Bureau Veritas.